Hi, and welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm Lynn Kitchens, happy to be on the teaching team, happy to be with all of you very, very wonderful women. We are looking at the book of Revelation. If you hadn't figured that out, this would be a good time to get into that. Um, these first few weeks, we're really looking at seven local churches um, that God, that Christ is writing to, different assemblies of believers. And you know, I just think we kind of need to stop and think about that. Can you imagine being a church that received a letter from Jesus Christ? I mean, that had to be something incredible, personal letter to their church from Jesus himself. And I was thinking, what would it feel like if Jesus wrote us a letter and today someone ran down the aisle with a piece of parchment and said, Jesus has written your church a letter. And they jumped on stage and undid the scroll to the church called Christ Chapel in Fort Worth, Texas. What a solemn moment. I thought, well, first we'd be real happy, then we'd be real scared. <laughs> then we want to celebrate, then we'd be convicted. What an incredible gift for them, how overwhelming for them to hold in their hands the very words of Jesus Christ. Today, we actually do have a parchment letter from God, and it's right here. And it's the very words of God to us so we can be a healthy church. We need to approach this letter for the church right here with the same um, serious solemnness, obedience that hopefully those other churches receive their letter from God. And we also have to know this, since their letter is in our letter, that means it's for us. We're not just bystanders. These are letters to the church, period, to teach them and admonish them into obedience and knowing God better. Today, Jesus wants to talk about the church of Pergamum and Thyatira and tolerance and everything that goes with it. And isn't it a good thing for us that tolerance isn't really an issue today in the world? <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. I have a friend who attended a conference recently. She was in a small group and the leader of the group asked the first question and this was the question. Speak your truth and be respectful of other people's truth. And my friend fortunately said, well, I believe there's an ultimate truth, so I'm having difficulty with this concept. Welcome to our world today, a world all about tolerance. Tolerance, we know, can be a good thing. Every day we have to tolerate traffic. We tolerate crying babies in a restaurant. If you live in Alito, you tolerate trains. I'm looking into the Alito people, lots and lots of trains. You know what I'm talking about. Now, though, we're supposed to tolerate everybody's truth. And there was a time when we could accept their truth but disagree with it. Now, it's not enough. We have to accept it, and then we have to approve it. It puts Christians in a very hard place. Too often we end up tolerating the wrong things. 
Why do we do that? I just thought about myself and why I do that sometimes. We hate conflict. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. We love them. It's no big deal. We want to fit in or we're beginning to not know anymore what is true and what is false. But here's the problem. Wrong beliefs lead to wrong actions. Wrong beliefs lead to wrong actions. And so tolerance to beliefs that are false make for a crazy lost world that we live in today. And when tolerance gets into the church, it makes for a crazy lost church as well. Chuck Swindoll put it this way, like a cancerous tumor that spreads through healthy flesh, compromise allows falsehood to strangle the truth, ultimately destroying it. So let's see what Jesus wants to tell us about it today. The church of Pergamum. And he opens his letter stating his purpose. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. When we get that image of Jesus, we know right off he is a divine judge. He is carrying a double-edged sword like the Romans would carry when they were having close combat with someone. Since it's double-edged, he is able to separate believers from non-believers. So it's a sword of salvation as well as a sword of punishment. And we can be forever grateful that Jesus carries that sword to ultimately bring peace and bring abundance to this world that we live in. Later in this letter, Jesus is going to call the sword the sword of his mouth. If you look at verse 16 with me. Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember John's description of Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation? And he mentions that he has a two-edged sword coming from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus' very words bring judgment. All of Jesus' advocates will fall by the pronouncements of his mouth. And we think again to when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers came running by him and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, that Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, I am he. At the pronouncement of judgment from his words, they drew back and fell at his feet. The words of Christ, an illustration of his righteous judgment. So the sword is going to separate those who are aligned with Jesus with those who are opposed to Jesus. Look at Hebrews 4 on your verse sheet. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so he's the judge. He's entering his church. Look at verse 13. He tells the church of Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you 
where Satan dwells. So the first thing Jesus does is commend the church for holding fast to his name, even though persecution was going on. There's a few more things we can learn in this one verse. First of all, Jesus says he knows. He knows the city of Pergamum. He knows the evil that possesses it. It was a wealthy city, but it was a wicked city. The name Pergamum is from the word that we get, the word parchment, which would be called then Pergamena. So we know that making paper from animal skins, the city was known for doing that, was also known for its great medicine and its incredible library. It was built on a thousand foot hill and a fertile plain 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was the capital of the Roman province for 250 years. Kind of incredible, but it was also a pagan cult center for the worship of many false gods. In the Acropolis, overlooking the city, stood a 40-foot-tall altar to the god Zeus. And maybe this is what Jesus means when he says, I know Satan's throne is there. So let's take a look at that. This is a look of it in Germany in a museum where they've redone it, 40 foot tall. You can see those marble friezes all around and it's the gods fighting a battle against mythical people and real people. Back then, those would have all been painted, those people bright, bright colors. At the top, where we see behind those pillars would be where you would see smoke burning all day as they sacrificed to these false gods. Okay, something else that was in Pergamum was the temple to Caesar. This was the only city that did that, the first city in Asia, actually, to build a temple to Caesar, capital of the cult of Caesar worship. Okay, next we're gonna see an overview. One artist put together these two things. You see down at the bottom and the left, the temple to um, the altar to Zeus, and then you go on up, you see the temple to Caesar, you see all the smoke where they're sacrificing and devoting their hearts, their time, and everything to gods that were not gods at all. This is the city of Pergamum where Satan dwelled. How overwhelming to be a Christian there. I was thinking you wouldn't want to carry some Christian tracks into that area and try to pass them out. You might end up on an altar. How difficult to stand firm in what you knew to be true, in your beliefs. But this is what Christ calls us to do. Hold fast to what you know to be true. Resist compromising our faith in him. Look what James 4 tells us. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Even though persecution was going on, we know persecution was going on because a member of their church, Antipas, was killed and persecuted. He was probably the pastor of their church. Tradition holds that he was burned to death inside of a bull, a brass bull. And in these passages, Jesus calls him his faithful witness. What an honor to be called that, because that's what Jesus called himself in chapter 1. A faithful witness. Jesus had warned them about persecution. 
and that stands true today as much as it did back then around the world. In fact, I read something I almost couldn't believe. There have been 45 million believers, they estimate, martyred for the sake of Christ throughout history. And two-thirds of all Christian martyrs in the history of the church died in the 20th century. I was just shocked to find that out. 160,000 people are killed a year since 1990 for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were holding fast. I read about a Pastor Dow. He pastored Peking's largest church when the communists were in control. They were trying to get rid of all the Christians. And so they threw Pastor Dow into the prison and he was tortured and he was tortured and tortured, and they kept saying, renounce your faith, renounce it. Finally, he couldn't stand the torture anymore, and he renounced his faith, and they kicked him out on the streets. And they said people could see him wandering the streets, shuffling around, muttering to himself, I am Judas. I am betrayed, my Lord. After a few weeks of wandering the streets like that, he made his way back to the prison and said, I don't renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. You need to put me back in prison. And they did. They kept him there for 27 years. And when he was released at the end of his life, he was a hero to the church. They saw him stand steadfast in his faith, and it gave them courage and strength to hold on to their beliefs as well. He was a contemporary faithful witness, as Jesus talked about. Let's look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, Jesus now is going to rebuke them for tolerating the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and I want us to talk about these false teachings. First, Balaam. Remember, he was a pagan prophet in the book of Numbers. The Moabites were terrified of the Israelites. So their king, Balak, hired this false prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. He tried many times. God always stopped him. So then Balaam was sharp and came up with a way for Israel to curse themselves. He told the Moabite king, you need to start introducing your Israelite men to the Moabite women. See what happens then. And it was just what he'd hoped. They began to marry these women. They began to worship the false gods of these women. They began to commit sexual immorality. So somehow... Oh, I wanted to mention, too, God had to send a plague on Israel for that, and 24,000 Israelites died just to stop that sin. Somehow, these past destructive teachings of Balaam had made their way into the church of Pergamum, marrying idol worshipers, worshiping their gods, being involved in sexual sins. Also, the the teachings of the Nicolaitans was alive in the church too. Remember last week, Amy mentioned that Ephesus was praised because they didn't give in to the teachings of this group of people. Not so in the church of Pergamum. They were tolerating them. What do we know about them? 
In verse 6 of chapter 2, we learn that Jesus hated their teaching. If he hated their teaching, it didn't line up with his teaching. So they were probably teaching similar to the teachings of Balaam that I just mentioned. But I thought this was interesting. Nicholas, which would come from the word Nicolaitans, means to conquer people. And one historian back during that time wrote that he believed Nicholas was one of the deacons from chapter 6 in the book of Acts when they chose deacons to help the people. But they said he was a false believer and he began to lead people astray. And it was easy to do because he had some credentials alongside his name. He led people into immorality and wickedness and his followers would assault the church with sensual temptations. Another historian from that time wrote this, the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Here's Christ's issue against the church in Pergamum. What in the world are you doing tolerating these sins in the church? We say, love the sinner, hate the sin. They say, love the sinner and accept their sins. Why would they do that? Why does the church do that today? First of all, I think we can't totally understand what their culture was like at the time and the pressures they were feeling, but still, Christ is calling them to be true to their faith. Maybe they had foolishly allowed some of those people to get into their leadership in the church. Maybe it was just easier to look the other way. Maybe they were willing to compromise on what they knew to be true doctrine. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they wanted peace and unity. Maybe they thought, like we often do in the church today, we're just supposed to forgive and love. There's more to it than that. We're supposed to hold people accountable to their sins and help them get out of them. Then they receive this letter from Jesus. Look at verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus calls for the church to repent or he will war against them in righteous judgment. When he says he's going to come soon, that word means suddenly. Suddenly, he will be at their door and contend with them using the sword of his mouth, the word of God, which judges all compromise and sins. They must repent, mean turning away from these false teachings turning away from the immorality that went along with it. And Jesus is so amazing, he also encourages them. In both these letters, we're going to see that. He says, you can conquer that sin. You can be a conqueror. You can be an overcomer. Because Satan's power slinks away when we humbly repent and we begin to obey God. Look at what 1 Peter tells us. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Rewards awaits the conqueror back then. Rewards await us today when we hold fast to what's true. He's going to reward them with hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. If you're like me, you thought, what? What is that? What does that mean? Okay, so we know manna was a gift from God, fell from heaven while Israel traveled in the wilderness. It's what nourished them and fed them. We also know Jesus calls himself the bread from heaven. So this could mean he will be these conquerors, source of nourishment and strength hidden from the world in heaven. Israel received physical food from above that sustained them. These conquerors will receive spiritual food from above to sustain them as they wait for Christ's return. A few possibilities about the white stone with a new name. This is probably symbolizing our access into heaven because of our identity in Christ. And here's how we know that. In order to get into a theater in Pergamum, you had to have purchased a white stone to be allowed to get in. If you were an athlete in Pergamum and you won uh, your division, you won your race, you were given a white stone and you got to go to the athlete's celebration party. So I think Christians, we symbolically carry a white stone in our pocket while we're here on earth. And It is our access to one day be with our Father in heaven. And also, he says it's going to have a new name on that white stone pass. Here's what a couple people think. One theologian said, a new name means God's title to glory. Another theologian said, there could be a personal name written down that God has given you, and that is your access into eternal glory. Another possibility of the stones is that they used black and white stones in trials. If someone was guilty, they threw a black stone at them. If they weren't, they got a white stone. So it could symbolize believers are handed a stone, a white stone in heaven, because they hold an innocent verdict because Jesus paid for their sins, even though we don't deserve it. I found this poem about heaven that I thought was fun. It's called Shock in Heaven. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, by the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. (laughs) Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. And Bob, who I always thought would be rotting away in hell. (laughs) Was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet and somber? Give me a clue. 
Hush, child, said Jesus. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd see you. <laughs> we all carry a stone we don't deserve. Praise God for that. Regardless of what these symbols mean, when we take a stand for truth, we receive a conqueror's reward from Jesus. So I saw those two things like this. We are sustained by him today on earth, that's manna. We are received by him in heaven one day in the future. That's the white stone, gifts from God. So the church of Pergamum had lies and sins inside the church and outside the church. They'd been doing good conquering the outside of the church. Jesus is saying, time to conquer inside your own church. Look at 2 Corinthians. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Okay, let's fast forward and look at the church in Thyatira that has the same issues. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the third church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has his eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So again, Jesus portrays himself as a great judge. These are phrases he used in chapter one. Only in chapter one, he was the son of man. What is he in this verse? He is the son of God. This church needed him to reaffirm his deity to them. When we read this picture of Christ, it's like we are watching him come down from heaven and stepping into John's world here, carrying all power and authority as the divine son of God. He has blazing eyes. That means righteous indignation. There is no one, there is nothing hidden from his sight. His burnished bronze feet of judgment move through the churches judging them for their sin. So what do we know about this church he's about to enter? This church in Thyatira may first have heard the gospel from Lydia. If you guys remember the story of Lydia coming to Christ, Paul converted her there many years earlier. God used her to build the church in Thyatira. But that area was first founded as a shrine to the sun god. It was a small town. It lived in the shadow of big towns. Pergamum was one of them. Pergamum was just 40 miles away from this little town. Once it was a military outpost to guard Pergamum, and the soldiers of Alexander the Great lived there for quite a time. But it was a vulnerable city. It was exposed. It was destroyed all the time and then rebuilt. And it was known for its trade guilds. They were the center of the town's social life and religious life, which was a problem 
for the Christians in this town who all had different trades. If you wanted to be a member in a trade union, you had to participate in all their pagan religious obligations. And if you said, oh, I don't want to do that, then you were ostracized and often your career was over. So you can see the pressure that some of these Christians may have thought, well, I'm going to join it and God will just forgive me or some of the things I may have to do and be a part of it, but that wasn't going to be okay with Jesus. We're about to meet a woman in the church that Jesus calls Jezebel, who probably promoted the church to get involved in these pagan trade guilds and their pagan practices, rituals of idolatry and immorality and false worship. So let's look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I love that he begins by saying, I see your good works. His flaming eyes pierced through that thin veil of faithful followers. He saw their works were increasing. He commends them for love and service and faith and patient endurance, but he can see things that they don't see very well. He has those eyes of blazing fire, and he sees a darkness in the church, and it's growing. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The church of Pergamum that we just finished was chastised for tolerating false teachings. The church at Thyatira was being chastised for tolerating the false teacher in their church. Jesus rebukes, rebukes them for tolerating a false teacher and all of the sins that this Jezebel promotes. So do you guys remember Jezebel in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Kings, married to Ahab, evil, idolatrous, hated God, loved the false god Baal, hated God's servant Elijah, led Israel astray into great amounts of idolatry and sexual immorality. She was vicious. She was manipulative. And Jesus says, she's in your church. This same kind of woman, this Jezebel. She's promoting the same kind of things. She practices pagan religions while claiming to be a prophetess. I wondered, you know, at church suppers, were they sitting around a table and some of the food on the table was food that had been offered to idols at some time? We also read this has been going on for some time, even though Jesus patiently gave her time to repent, which is almost hard to believe, isn't it? How, how merciful our God is. Gave her time to repent. Some people think this woman may have been one of the earliest Gnostic groups that teach the deep things of Satan. We're going to see that later on, that phrase that Jesus uses. Here's what they believe. God is only concerned with the, with the condition of our soul, so he doesn't care about our physical body. So woohoo, go do whatever you want. 
go indulge in any kind of pleasure that you want to do because that's not going to affect your relationship with God. Only how your soul is doing. It's going to be, wow, what a license to sin. What was acceptable to the locals in Thyatira was hated by Christ. And so this woman should not have been tolerated in their church. He calls for repentance of her works or tribulation and death will come to her followers. Look at verse 22. Behold, I'll throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. These are some of the harshest words in the seven letters we are going to look at in the seven churches. But the church of Thyatira would have been around 40 years old at this point, and it's possible that this woman's debauchery had been influencing them now into a next generation. And so since this woman had used a bed for immorality and a reclining couch as she ate food offered to false gods, God said, I'm going to judge you upon a bed, along with everybody who jumped into it with you. Sickness would come upon them all. They would face death. The Son of God had walked into the doors of his church with his bronzed feet, and he was cleaning house. And then all the churches would hear about it, and they would know Jesus searches our minds and our hearts, and we will be disciplined accordingly. Look at Psalm 7. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. Look at Jude 3. I thought this was a good description of what was going on in Thyatira. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Stay firm. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sounds like this Jezebel. Again, Jesus gives them opportunity to repent. And he offers them words of encouragement to those who have not jumped into a bed of lies and sin. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you who don't hold this teaching, who haven't learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm coming. So hold fast to what's true. There is no other burden 
Be a conqueror. Be a conqueror over lies and the sins that go with it. Keep my works until the end, and rewards will come. All who conquer and keep his works unto the end will be given authority over the nations. I think that is unbelievable. Those who are faithful can look forward to reigning with Jesus in the millennial for a thousand years. And he even quotes in these verses, Jesus does, Psalm 2. Look on your verse sheet. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And look at 2 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. You know, the word rule in verse 27 actually means to shepherd. So we won't only be directing justice, we are also going to use that reigning time to be a shepherd protecting the sheep of Christ. So holding fast to Jesus and not to false teachers leads us to ministry forever. Jesus also said, I'll give you the morning star, and that could mean a couple things. One, it could mean our participation in the rapture before the dark hours come. We're going to be given the brightness of the morning star, removed before darkness comes during the tribulation. But we also know in Revelation 22, Jesus calls himself the morning star. So another possible meaning is that we all have Jesus. He's dawned in our hearts, but one day, will have the morning star in all his fullness when we get to be with him in heaven. Okay, what about us? We are the church today. We are called to uphold the truth that we know to be true, the doctrines, the teachings that have been passed down, this word of God. We are to resist the temptation for tolerance in the church. With our leaders, we present truth. We promote truth found in God's word. I know quite a few people here at Christ Chapel that have told me your story, how you were in some other church and you caught on to some false teaching and a false teacher and you went to the leadership and they didn't do anything. So you came here, which hallelujah, that's our goal, the Christ Chapel's goal is to always be teaching the word of God. So we can't tolerate anything else. We have to be alert. We have to be bold for the health of our church. But what happens when we look out the windows of the church? What happens when we look into the world? What about our temptation to tolerate ungodly beliefs that are out in the world? We mentioned one of the greatest virtues our secular society holds today is for everyone to tolerate and approve everyone's belief system and their lifestyle, even if it pushes against our worldview and our belief. What in the world are we to do? Sometimes I just scratch my head. I don't know. I do know this. We have to hold on to truth. That's our goal. When the world doesn't, we do, or else. How can we continue to be a light as the world gets darker? If we tolerate it, we join in the darkness. So we have to be aware 
We have to be intentional and we have to be prepared. Here's just a few thoughts. To discern the false, seek the truth. Hey, that's why you're here today. So I know this is a priority in your life. To discern the false, seek the truth. There is absolute truth. Here it is, right here. And the more we know what's true, the more we know what's false. The more we know what's untrue. We hold this tightly to combat lies and strengthen our own beliefs. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Second, trust that Jesus knows where you dwell. As he told the Pergamum church, I know where you dwell. He knows where we dwell. He knows what evils are around us. He knows the battles we have to face. He knows the sins that are out in the world. So we can remember, I'm not alone. I've got Christ right here at my side. He's going to help me. He understands where I dwell, so he will help me. He's with me. He will understand and be faithful. John 16, 33, he tells us that. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, even in this crazy world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Another thing we can do is limit the lies. Television, movies, blogs, social media, music, pretty much daily bombard us with a value system that leaves God out of it. We need to recognize and evaluate the areas where we can limit the lies in our lives. What habits do we need to change? What things do we need to avoid? What things do we need to run to so we're limiting the lies? Because guess what? A steady dose of the world's belief system can begin to eat away at ours. And we may not even know it. Then pray for wisdom and boldness because we're not called to judge unbelievers. They're lost. They don't know the truth. We are called to uphold truth. So when we meet with these people with unbiblical views who don't know Christ, we pray for wisdom. We pray for boldness. We pray for God's timing to talk with them. Uh, sometimes we even tell the women that are in the mentoring ministry when your mentee starts telling you about their life, just try to keep a straight face. When they tell you some things, we think we're going to have to work on that. We want them to know truth, not so we can be right. Not so we can win the debate. Not so we can show them how smart or how holy we are. We do it because we care. Because they may never have heard anything like it before living in this world. We offer life. We offer truth. We offer a savior. I was thinking today, I was 15 years old. I can still remember the room I was in, the place I was sitting, when someone got up front and told me, you're a sinner and you need a savior. Praise God that that person chose to uphold truth. We are called to be light. If the light is hidden under a basket of tolerance, how's the world? A 
kind of know what's true. It's not loving to get inside that basket. Be aware that tolerating sin is often the first step toward disobedience. When we naively live in this world, tolerating ungodly beliefs and behaviors, it's like erosion. Slowly, silently, subtly, these falsehoods begin to eat away at our faith. It all starts when we become numb to what's false, when we become numb to the lies and the behaviors that push against God. Here's what happens. We expect them. We accept them. We become them. When we are called to conquer them. When it comes to this idea of tolerance, let's never forget this. Jesus did not tolerate our sin. Jesus pursued us with the truth. Jesus purchased us with his blood. Jesus presented us before God, blameless at God's glorious throne. This throne is a throne of absolute truth. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love how much you love us, that you come into the churches and you try to make them healthy and you try to strengthen us to do the right thing. We pray that we would do that in this church. We pray that we would do it out in the world in a way that brings glory to you and who you are. And we want to say thank you that you pursued us with truth so we are no longer lost. We love you and give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.